All right. Romans. I'm just going to sit here and preach right from back here. Okay. So I'm no, I'm joking. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. You are used for a year just listening, so you don't need to see me. All right. Romans. Uh, go ahead and go to Romans 7. I know we're actually in Romans 8. I know we've gone backwards, but. Well, I don't. Actually, I don't like doing anything with this chapter at all uh, because I have no clue what to do with this chapter. But we're trying. All right. Here we go. Go to Romans chapter 7. And very important that we uh, remind ourselves of verse 25. Remember, I, I, I am convinced. I know other commentaries are not convinced. But I am convinced that Romans 7.25 is absolutely one of the most important verses in understanding Romans chapter 8. Okay? Now, we've been talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we've done, we spent some time looking at what everyone else says well, because you have the Holy Spirit, this, this is what happens. This is what you get from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? Remember, we spent a lot of time looking at the, I think I gave you eight things, maybe. I think I had a list of ten, but I think we stopped with eight. And you can go back and look at all of those things. And those things are somewhat problematic. And the reason some of them are problematic is because if you claim to be a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, well, then supposedly these things are happening. And, and the ones that are most problem, the one that's most problematic is the common teaching within Christianity at large that if you have the Holy Spirit, what should immediately be the result of you having the Holy Spirit according to how Christians teach it? You now have power to not do what? To not sin. Then they argue, they, 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 they say that in a dogmatic way, and then they always back up and go, however, you're still going to sin. Which seems to be contradictory. Yes, if I have the power not to sin, then why do I sin? And you say, well, because you still want to sin. Well, are you saying the Holy Spirit's not powerful enough to change my want to into a not want to? Right? That's a pretty obvious question. So I, I constantly make an argument against that. Because, and the reason I make an argument against that is because I know you and I know me. And I know Christians all around the world. And what do we see within the churches everywhere? Broken marriages, sexual sin, falling, uh, we got gossip, slander, church splits, backbite, very similar to what we see outside the church. I wonder why. I wonder why. I don't know. I, I, I still question this supposed power that we have because it's just, it's just to me, it's not, it, after 2,000 years of church history, put it this way, if we had the power that the way Christians sell it, the world should sit back and take notice, right? I mean, look at that. Whew. Just, just, that's who you want to be like. I mean, look at those people. They don't lie. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They don't, lie, they don't hurt anybody. Look at them. And there would be like a literal studies proving how great we are. But what do we, every time, you know, look at this scandal. Look at this scandal. And when the scandals happen, Christians are always shocked. <gasps> how could there be a scandal? Because what are we still? Still sinners. And we, in any denial of that reality, it, to me, hurts people. And why does it hurt people? Because if you become a Christian and you think, oh, now I've got this power and I'm going to overcome this, and then you realize you're still struggling, still struggling, you become either very discouraged thinking that Christianity is not working or you think something's wrong with you. 
So we have to really look at this. And we, 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 we did a lot of talking. So we're going we're gonna to just go back and put this together and, and see how far we can get into Romans 8. We're going to try to move quick to see if we can get beyond all of this difficulty, all right? And I know we've kind of done this in a start, stop, start, back up, start, back up. And it may be a little irritating, but I'm doing that on purpose to try to show you the complexity of trying to struggle with a passage that, that seems to go against a lot of concepts that you actually see, all right? But let's read Romans 7.25, all right? Verse 24 gives us, a, um, kind of gives us uh, the feeling, the emotion of the chapter. The Apostle Paul says, A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And remember, he's talking about a, a struggle, What's the struggle Paul has expressed at the end of chapter 7? That the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do, those he does. And he doesn't know what's wrong. That somewhere in the inward man, he delights in the law of God. But guess what he does in his flesh? He sins. And so he's screaming out for what in that verse? For deliverance. Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? He's literally screaming out for deliverance. And so where does he look to for deliverance? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve what? But with the flesh, the law of sin. And he draws a a contrast between two things. What are the two things? What are the two things he draws a contrast between? Law of God and the law of sin. Right? With the mind, what is he serving? With his flesh, what is he serving? Now, we have to, we have to understand that. What does that seem to tell you? Just, from, from a, just stop before we even get to eight. What does this seem to describe to you? That a person inwardly, truly wanting to please God, but outwardly is doing what? Sinning. Yes? Does that seem to apply that to you? Because where is he serving the law of God? Where is he serving the law of sin? That seems to describe action. All right? Now, let's pick up this idea. To understand, here's how one commentary puts it, to understand what Paul means by the law of sin and death, we need to note the link between the flesh and sin. And this thinking... Uh, in his thinking, we got to understand this link. For instance, he concludes the previous chapter with the dismal words, with the flesh serve the law of sin, thereby clearly identifying the flesh as the means whereby sin operates within the human experience. I think I can agree with that, don't you? Yes? Flesh or carnal appears in contrast to God and his work in human lives. It means human nature with a particular reference to its inbuilt sinfulness. Uh, some define it as the inclination to seek self-satisfaction in everything. Someone else says sinful propensity from Adam. The flesh is an attitude or inclination operating in complete rejection of the divine will that requires self-sacrificial submission, choosing rather to, f- to the free expression of anything and everything that will bring self-gratification. What are, they want, what, what are they striving for? To understand what he means by the flesh. The flesh is that thing that seeks only self, self-gratification, self-pleasure. And the Apostle Paul is arguing that with his flesh, he, he is serving the law of sin. 
with this principle of self-gratification. He is serving it. He is using it. All right? Now, why this is very critical to what we just spent an hour talking about. How do you take a someone like that and look at and what, what is his basis of assurance of salvation? If he looks to himself, it looks like he's going to come to what conclusion? He's not saved. Right? So, you see how these two are linked? You see where, where we are in the Niagara Creek? Okay. All right, so um, they go on to say, it is in the flesh that the law of sin and death moves and has its being. Anyone who reads Romans 8 should have little, little difficulty in grasping the significance of the flesh. The law is said to be weak through the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. The flesh mind is at enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Furthermore, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All of those are statements from Romans chapter 8, demonstrating that that we understand the flesh with the way we understood it at the end of Romans 7. It's this part of us that doesn't want anything to do with God, hates God, doesn't desire God, but what, but it still remains what? With us, even as believers. Let me state that again. The flesh remains with us, even though we are believers. Everybody got that? All right, so far so good. Okay. Now, um, to be in the flesh means the same as being in Adam or unregenerate or to live according to the flesh means to live as if unregenerate after becoming regenerate. So let's listen to this again. To be in the flesh, to be in the flesh, means the same as being in Adam or unregenerate. They say that that phrase, in the flesh, means to be unregenerate. To live according to the flesh means to live as if you are unregenerate after becoming unregenerate. So what they draw a distinction between two terms. To be in the flesh equals what? Unregenerate. To live according to the flesh means what? To be saved but live as if you're not. Everybody see that? Everybody got that? Now you see how this would apply to the assurance? If I can be, if I can be saved and let, yet live according to the flesh, that means as a saved person, I'm living like what? Like an unregenerate person. So now that would have all kinds of problems with assurance, would it not? Okay, so can a saved person live according to the flesh? Well, according to the flesh. According in the flesh means you're not saved. So obviously a saved person... In the flesh, unregenerate. According to the flesh. Can a saved person live according to the flesh? Yes or no? Well, that commentary seems to imply you can. <clears throat> well, what are you basing? What? There we go. Okay, that's what I want everyone to see. Romans chapter 7, what is Paul saying? With his mind, he serves what? With his flesh... That seems to be living according to the flesh. All right? So even, and I wish, oh, I wish Paul would have listed the sins he were committing. I so wish he listed them. 
right? Because everybody in their mind just goes, oh, it probably wasn't anything serious, right? Probably wasn't anything big, right? I wish someday we'd come across some manuscript that laid it, and people were like, Paul's not saved, right? I wish it would really list them out. What were you going to say? Oh, you're guilty of all. Right, exactly. But nobody truly believes, nobody truly believes that. But yeah. So, but I wish he listed them out. Because, because we have this idea that, oh, Paul was just hypersensitive. And he probably, probably, you know. But I wonder what kind of actual action. Obviously, whatever actions he was doing, he was greatly bothered by whatever actions he was involved in. He was greatly bothered by it. Okay? Whatever they may be. All right? But, so, let's continue here. Now. Based off all of that, this, you see this contrast between, in a sense, uh, this idea of the law of God and, and the flesh? You see that contrast at the end of chapter 7? Many believe that laying out, starting in chapter 8, what Paul attempts to do is kind of lay out what God does to combat this problem. That's how many people approach chapter 8. And what is the solution brought to the forefront of this problem, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? That, we've been talking about this, correct? Yes, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to kind of back up a little bit and put it all together and see what the solution ultimately looks like. Are you ready? Here we go. What is the first thing, thinking caps on, you've been in Romans, so everyone should get this. What is the first thing that God, and how did I write this down? What is the what is the first thing God gave to us to, in, in a sense, to try to fight against sin? What is the first thing Paul seems to indicate? Not in chapter 8. He mentions it earlier in chapter 7. What does, he, what does Paul seem to indicate? God gave us something in order to deal with sin. No, 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 no. Wait, the Holy Spirit's going to be an 8. The law. Well, who said it? Very good. The law. All right. Very good. All right. Good, good, good. All right. The law. That makes me happy if someone got it. All right. The law. We spent like, I don't know, feels like a year in chapter seven. And what did we discover about the law and its attempt to deal with our sin? Yes, it does not solve the problem. What does it do? Name some of the things it does or doesn't do. We talked about, we went, we gave you an entire list. You should have it in your notes. It could not make man right with God. It could not make him live right before God. The law lacked an ability to make us right before God. Remember, remember the most, I, I, I was shocked how many people did not realize this. What did Paul literally say about the law in chapter 7? It increases sin. It arouses sin. It incites sin. The law actually incites it. Remember we talked about that in Romans 7. Anybody know the verse in Romans 7 where we draw this principle from? I mentioned it yesterday in a podcast. Okay. Okay. What does it say? Tell me what it says. Okay, that he's saying the law wrought in him all manners of, of, of lust and desire, right? It brought it forth. There's another verse later on that seems, to, he talks about covetousness later on in chapter 7. That basically the law brought about covetousness in him. 
So in chapter 7, do I need to find it or can y'all find it? I know you're like, well, I come to church to hear you. No, you come to church to study the Bible. So <laughs> I make you do it. Then chapter 7. Okay. You're talking about the law? Okay, verse 8. Is there another one, though, that says something else about? Okay, produce death. Okay. Okay, well, that's more about bringing it up. Okay. But the bottom line is, this chapter 7, there's a number of locations. There's another verse I'm thinking of, but I won't go find it right now. Okay, the bottom line is, chapter 7 clearly demonstrates that the law does what? Produce death. Produce condemnation. It actually incites and arouses sin. So God gives the law, and the law lacks ability to really deal with sin. What is the law designed to do as far as it comes to sin? Exposing it? I, I know that this, not, not everyone will agree with this, but according to chapter 7, arouses it. Now, why is that? The more it arouses the sin, it makes the sin more evident. By making the, more, the sin more evident, what does that do? Demonstrate your state of being, which then demonstrates that you're under the wrath of God. So the law, so the first thing that's kind of provided is the law. But you've got to understand the law can't fix it. The law, law can't solve it. I just, I don't know why Christians never understand this. Like, like we always think, man, I, I, I saw this, uh, I, I saw this uh, in regards to the Atlanta shooting. Well, this Atlanta shooting, okay, this guy had problems. He had porn problems. He had problems. He took a gun. He killed all of these people. And so I saw, I don't know how many Christian publications, we need a law banning all pornography. Do you think that's going to fix the problem? That would only arouse, according to the scripture, it only arouse the problem. It won't, it, won't, it won't solve the problem. It's like Christians sometimes don't even follow their own, their own, their own Bible when it comes to how they want to fix social problems. We always think, Christians always think the way to fix a social problem is to do what? Ban it! Outlaw it! Burn it! Shut it down! Oh, I can't believe Cardi B did that on the Grammys! Oh no! It should be banned! It should be... Oh no! Cardi B sing a song! Oh, bad, 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 bad! Don't, 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 don't! And all the don'ts only create, create, uh, increases the do's. Does that make sense? Now, it's one thing to condemn it. It's one thing to say that's not biblical. I'm by no means saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm saying making a law to ban other people from it Never fixes it. So the law doesn't solve the problem. Can we all say amen to that? I can come up here this morning and say, here are the 37 commandments you need to follow this week, and you're all going to laugh at me because you're not going to do any of them. Right? Does everybody understand that? All right. So we, 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 I, I, I hate the fact that we're backing up again, but we've got to get this across. We've got to get this across. All right. We've got to understand that. All right. So everybody got that. All right. Second. So he gave the law. What's the second thing he gave in order to fix the problem? Look at Romans chapter eight. This one is in Romans chapter eight. Okay. Look at verse three. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, 
See, the law was weak through the flesh. The law was weak through the flesh. So in other words, it wasn't the fact that the law was the problem. What was the problem? The flesh. The flesh can't keep it. The flesh can't obey it. So what did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemn sin in the flesh. So what's the second thing he does to fix the sin problem? He sent his own son. He sent his own son. So the law and sent his own son. Now, sending his own son, how does that fix the sin problem? It, it, it fixes the sin problem in what way? Thinking caps on. It condemns sin, pays the price for sin, right? Therefore, how does it con- solve? How does the sending of, of Jesus solve the sin problem in your life? It solves the sin problem in your life positionally, not practically, right? Because he died for sin and his righteousness is imputed to me. So but in Christ Jesus, how do I stand? Go, look at Romans 8.1. No condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because I am declared what in the presence of God? Holy, righteous, perfect. Holy, righteous, perfect. Why? Because the imputed righteousness of Christ is accredited to my account. So far, so good? So far, so good. Now... Um, so God sent his son. All right, now, um, some, well, I'm just going I've to, got, I've got another one here, but I'm just going to skip. I'm going to skip that one. All right, I'm going to skip that one. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just going to put uh, the next two. I'm just going to, they're all, all grouped in Christ. So let's just make sure we understand this. In Christ, everything's taken care of. Why? Because my sin is, the penalty of sin has been paid for, right? The wrath of God has been satisfied. So God's wrath that should come upon my sin is poured upon Jesus. So therefore, my sin has been paid for, covered. So I have forgiveness and I have righteousness, right? I have the righteousness. So that leads us to Romans 8, 4. Because of what Jesus did, because the coming of his son, then what happens in verse 4? What happens in Romans 8, 4? And we've already talked about all of this. We spent hours on these. Okay. Right. That the righteousness of the law might be fully met. Now, it's, it's met where? Okay, well, what does the verse say? In us. In us. Now, remember, this is, there's a major controversy over this, okay? My, all of my reviews on the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, I've been spent, I don't know how many, I've spent 20 hours working on the Sermon on the Mount. I've done all of that because this is very related to what we're doing in Romans. I've done this for your benefit. That the pastor in Council Bluffs, Iowa, says that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in you because you've now given the power to fulfill the righteousness of the law in your action. That's, that's not wild. That's the most common teaching. That 99% of the churches in this town believe that. Right. Now, I will argue, no, what did God give? He gave the law. That law wasn't to fix the problem, it was to reveal the problem, right? So that once the problem is revealed, then what's needed? A solution that's found where? 
Not in us, but in Christ Jesus. Christ came. He died. Then, what does that lead to? The fulfilling of the righteousness demands of the law in me. How is it done in me? Because what's accredited to me? The perfect righteousness. Did Christ fulfill the righteousness of the law? Yes. Is it accredited to me? Yes. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. All right. I don't look. If you if you want to read Romans eight four as that you can fulfill the righteousness of the law, I'm gonna we we need to take a, a, a quick ride to oceans, and you need to be admitted because you're out of your mind. I'm sorry. You're insane. You're certifiably insane. This is what this is the nonsense that leads the Christians to looking like absolute hypocrites. To sit in church on Sunday and say that I can fulfill the righteousness of God's law in me. When you know by the time you get home, you've already broken it. And as Bobby said, if you break one, you've broken all. So guess what you all are? Lawbreakers. Right? So that's, I, I believe Jesus is the way that that is ultimately fulfilled. Does everybody understand that? Okay. Now, what's the next thing he gives? All right? Now, um, I've got a lot of scriptures here, but we're, we're going to go through there. The next thing he gives. What is the next thing? He, so, what is the first thing he gives us? The law. Second? Christ. Third? Now, there, there's a lot of other things we could take apart here, but we're, we're, I'm putting them all. They all, they all c- c- connect to what Christ did. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, what's the next thing he gives us according to this chapter? There we go. The Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. All right. Does everybody understand how all that works? Now, here we go. Let's start working at verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, let's stop right here. This seems to indicate this constant battle, right? Those who mind the things of the flesh, not remember the distinction they made or we, we made early on in the flesh, according to the flesh, after the flesh. In other words, that you we have a struggle. What's the struggle that we continue to fight with? That we want to mind the things after the flesh, right? We have a sometimes we want to mind and think about the things after the flesh versus the things of the spirit. This is that not the same problem mentioned in Romans seven twenty five? Yes. So now what the Holy Spirit comes along, the Holy Spirit is in us, and hopefully we want to mind the things of the Spirit. But the problem is still there. That, to me, that doesn't indicate that the problem just magically disappeared. Right? Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Right? And this, to me, is arguing the ongoing problem. Right? Sometimes we're carnally minded. There's no way to get around that we're not carnally minded sometimes. Correct? But does anything good come from that? No. Right? Next. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. For th- so them that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here's the problem. Those that are in the flesh. Now is that referring to someone who's unregenerate? Remember the distinction we made? Some would say it is. See the problem? Okay, let's continue. But ye are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. All right? So this immediately establishes what? That if we don't have the Spirit, we're not saved. That's dogmatic. So it seems to argue that if I have the Spirit, what am I no longer? I'm not in the flesh. I'm not in the flesh. That that's the distinction. That's the, that the Holy Spirit means I'm no longer in the flesh. To be in the flesh seems to, to make the argument that I am what? Dominated. Completely dominated by the flesh. No, un, no regenerate part is inside of me. So the distinction between what gets me out of being in the flesh? The Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is essential in the fighting against, the spirit, against sin. But it requires the Spirit to be in me. So far, so good? Yeah, okay. Let's see what else he says here about the Spirit. Let's see what else he says here about the Spirit. So far, so good? All right. Um, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What is it drawing a correlation again against? What two things is being contrasted against in verse 10? The body and the spirit. The body and the spirit. Does that not sound like the same kind of correlation being driven, given in Romans 7.25? Right? Yes? So what's in me? Spirit of God. But what, where does the spirit of God dwell? And a body that is dominated by flesh. So it's still seeming to, to argue this, this, this problem. Now, here's the, here's the struggle. Everyone believes, well, wait a minute. Paul is explaining the problem in 725. Eight has to be the solution. That doesn't sound like a solution, does it? Right? Well, it sounds like you end up right back where the, the chapter seven ended. I got the spirit in me, but the body is dead to sin. That sounds like that's not a solution. So others were like, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're misreading this. This has to be a solution. Well, let's, let's see what else can be given here, all right? Um, we just read, what, we read 10, right? Verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are not... We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now stop right there. All right? 11, 12, and 13. What does that seem to be indicating that the Spirit does? What does 11, 12, and 13 seem to be indicating? Okay, gives life. Can we, now here's the question. It seems to speak of a resurrection, does it not? Whatever in agree, it seems to speak of a resurrection. Okay, what's the big question you should ask yourself right there? Well, what's the, what's the, what's the first big question everyone here should ask?
Okay, let me ask this question. How many resurrections are there? There's only one resurrection? Only one. Okay, Stacy said three. This is, this is very basic. Okay, before you're saved, what are you? When you become saved, what are you? Is that not a resurrection? Okay, there's one. There's one, right? Okay, there's one. Okay, okay. Then, when you die, your body goes where? And what do you believe will happen at some point? That would be two. Okay, that would be two. All right, so we'll at least stick with those, okay? So there's two. So, okay, well, well, I was speaking in regards to us. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, so there's two, right? Everybody got that? Now, what's the obvious question about Romans 8 and the verses you just read? What's the obvious question? Which resurrection is it talking about? There we go. Okay. Are y'all, are y'all with me today? I'm, I'm, I'm have, I, feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm trying to pull teeth. Okay. Y'all with me here? Okay, so... Why is this why is this important? Why is this important? Well, because if it's talking about the resurrection that's to come, then it has nothing to do with your practical life now. But if it's talking about the resurrection that you have experienced because of salvation, then it's talking about the practical life you are living now. Does that make sense? Yes? All right, so how is it worded about this resurrection? Okay, what's the first verse here that speaks of it in Romans 8? Verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. What does that seem to be referring to? The resurrection of what? The mortal body. It's right there. The mortal body, correct? All right, so therefore, that's not referring to a resurrection that you are experienced now. That seems to be referring to a resurrection you experience when? Later. Does that make sense? Is anybody, is anybody missing that? Or does anybody disagree? Does anybody disagree? Does anybody translation place that in present tense and not future tense? Does it say will or hath? Okay, will. Will also, okay? Does everybody see that? Now, you see what can happen, right? Now, listen, I, I really want you to struggle with this, okay? If this is a solution, this is how some could preach it. He's already said in the previous verse that our bodies are dead in sin, Correct? Now, if he's referring to some kind of a resurrection, then some could argue, okay, then that's what happens. You get saved, because in the previous verse he says we have the Spirit, right? And he said because we have that Spirit, now he's going to resurrect this mortal body. So he resurrects this mortal body so that we can fight against the sin that is inside of us, or overcome, or literally eradicate the sin that is in us. But if it's referring to a future resurrection, then it has nothing to do with me right now, Correct? So which one do you think is the correct interpretation?
Well, everyone here better say later, because if you say now, then guess what I'm going to ask you to do? Prove it, right? Don't argue, prove it. Guess what I know is still in you? Sin. Guess what I still know is in your, in your flesh? Sin or death, right? Sin and death are equal. There seems to be a future hope here, right? Who's going to save me from, what did Paul say in Romans 7? Oh, wretched man. Read the exact words. Romans 7. Who shall deliver me? Body of this death. He, as long as I'm in this body, what am I going to experience? Sin. But because the spirit is in me, that's a guarantee, right? Do we not call it a guarantee? Right? Okay? It's a, a guarantee. It's like a down payment. Sometimes, we, sometimes people refer to it like it's an engagement ring, right? That he has given me the promise that he is going to come back and resurrect my body, right? That he's coming for me. That even though my body dies, it's going to be resurrected into a, a new body. And that new body is what's going to be completely absent from the new body. Sin and, and no, no element of death. My body can't get sick. That body can't die. It's gone. This seems to be referring to the ultimate deliverance is not now. It is future. But wait, is there any connection to the now? Right? So is, is the solution the spirit? Everybody should say amen. amen. So let's go through this again. We're sinners. What did God give to try to fight the sin? What's the first thing? The law. Second? Christ. Third, spirit. All right. Everybody see that? Okay. And now we're saying that the way, what's the the first thing the spirit seems to do? Well, it seems to give us, basically, it seems to combat the carnal mind. Do we not see that? For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but we, ultimately, we are in the spirit, right? There's something different about us. So we should have a different way of thinking, a different mind, which goes back to Romans 7.25. But who's ultimately going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, look at this. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. How am I? It seems like the way I'm going to, my body's going to be resurrected has something to do with the spirit in me because it serves as a guarantee. But does that not seem what it seems to be implying? All right. Then the next verse. What happens in the next verse? Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. So what is this implying? We have a new relationship with the flesh. Why do we have a new relationship with the flesh? According to the verse. Look at the previous verse. I no longer am a debtor to the flesh because guess what? I'm going to be, I'm going to experience a resurrection. I'm going to experience a resurrection. So why would I live to the flesh when ultimately I'm going to be resurrected out of that? In other words, I am not bound by the flesh. I have a new, I have a new understanding that this is temporary. So why do I live to serve something that is temporary? Does that make sense? I'm not a debtor to it. Because what now dwells in me? The Spirit of God. And what's the Spirit of God going to do? Resurrect me. So what should I be living to? The body that's going to go into the ground and decay or the spirit who's going to resurrect a new body? What should I be committed to? So what should I serve? 
Not does it say does is this guaranteeing some power to do it? No, it's saying that I have to have a new frame of reference and a new understanding. Does that make sense? Yes? All right. Next verse. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, we've got to be very careful with verse 13, right? Because that could sound like salvation by what? Works. Everybody see how it could sound like salvation by works? Now, why, what would be the number one reason for not... Into, does everybody understand why that sounds like salvation by works? If I'm not mortifying the deeds, then I'm not saved. Uh, yeah, if I'm not, I will die, right? Now, what, what, in that, what in the context of chapter 8 should lead me not to believe that this is teaching salvation by works? No, in chapter 8, in chapter 8. Remember, he starts this whole discussion with what in verse 1? No condemnation. He's already established there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So this can't turn around and then argue, hey, there's no condemnation. However, there can be condemnation if I don't do enough whatever. So what do you think Paul is saying here? What do you think Paul is saying here? What do you think he's saying? Verse 13. What do you think he's saying? Come on. I've got, I've got, oh, it's open book. It's open book. Open book test. The easiest test in the world. Okay. Right. Now, again, we can't, we can't interpret that to mean that this is dealing with salvation, right? So if it's not doing salvation, then what is it saying? I know what the words say. I know what the words are in the text. What is it saying? Like if you if you just if you just give me the words of the text, that's not that's not answering the everybody understand how that's not answering the question. Okay, look at verse six. Wouldn't verse six be a, a cross reference to what you're reading here? Of eight, chapter eight, verse I believe it's verse six. Remember, I'm here. I'm holding no notes. I'm just doing this in my mind. Okay, what's the principle he's trying to establish? Sin always produces what? Death. In some way. Does that mean, does it always have to mean eternal death? Does it even have to mean physical death? It means the principle of death and dying. It goes against your spiritual growth, spiritual life. So what is he simply establishing the principle here in this verse? What is he simply trying to say? Now again, don't read the scripture to me. Explain what is he trying to say? I I know what the words are. What is he trying to say? Please note, he says, live after the flesh. Did everybody see that? Okay. Now remember earlier, he does mention this idea that if, if we're in the flesh, we cannot please God, period. And that if we're in the flesh, okay, that we can, I got no problem arguing the phrase in the flesh means you're not saved. I got no problem with that. Here he's not saying you're in the flesh. He says if you live according, or what well, he doesn't say according, if you live after the flesh, but it's the same concept. I think the NIV uses according. Okay. So maybe that's where I was getting, according, okay? So this, the idea is, if you are a Christian 
and you are living according to the flesh, what principle will ultimately be produced in your life? Death. Does that mean hell? It can't mean hell because he's already established in 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Not only that, he's already established if you have the Spirit, what are you guaranteed? A future resurrection. So what is he simply trying to say? You live your life every day and you are either choosing the principle of death or of life. In the sense of what's being produced in your life, in, in your life, it's going to be produce the, the 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 works of the flesh, which are death. All of those things, the, uh, all the things the flesh can produce, right? Bitterness, division, fighting, anger, lust. All of those things, or it can produce the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long suffering. If you want that, you've got to pursue that of the spirit. He's drawing a correlation between the two. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, verse 14. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Led in what way? What is verse 14 talking about? Now, everybody thinks that this just means you're being led like what to do, where to park your car, who to marry, what house to buy, where to move. What's he referring to in 14? The Spirit's leading where? Go back to verse 13. What are the two principles in verse 13? You're, my, the, the, you're, you're doing that according to the flesh, or are you doing that what? The Spirit. So what's the Spirit? where is the Spirit going to lead you? Which direction? Does 13 say uh, mortify? Is, is, is verse 13 mention the mortifying of the body? Okay. Right. So, the, by the, and it says by the Spirit, right? All right, so where would the Spirit lead you if you are a Christian? It should lead you to, to strive for what? The mortification of the sinful body. The Spirit, that's, this is the solution offered up, that the Holy Spirit in you should do what? Give you a different way, think of it this way. Here's what the Holy Spirit should do with, with you. You ready? The Holy Spirit in you should do these three things. You ready? Number one, different way of thinking. Number two, a hope of a future resurrection. And number three, lead you to mortify and try to kill the flesh. Okay? Well, I won't even say a different way. It should lead you to try to fight it, right? To try to fight it. Okay? Because you're not going to do it perfectly, right? You're not going to do it perfectly. Everybody see that? And then we got one more. One more. We got one more. Um, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. What's the next thing the Spirit should do? Should lead us to crying out to God. Or, state it the way you said it, Diane, a relationship. It should create a relationship with the Father. All right? Everybody see that? So, let's, let's stop and now let's summarize this. I know, I know that was painful. I know you probably were getting irritated, okay? But, but I, I, I'm trying to, look, here's this chapter that I, I look, I, you know, you, let's, let's, can, let's be honest here. How many have read Romans chapter 8 at least more than four, five, five times in their life? How many, if I, I walk through that like I was just doing and ask you questions, you could not even answer the basic questions on what these verses even mean? 
Can everybody acknowledge that? Okay, so that's why I'm painfully doing this. I can come up here and preach a little sermon where I just give you what it means, but then when then five, you've all heard sermons on Romans 8, but yet when you're pushed, push comes to shove, you are having a very difficult time explaining what these verses mean, right? Okay, so that's why I'm doing it this way. Is it painful? Yes, okay, all right. I understand that. <clears throat> hey, if it's painful for you, I, I'm standing there like trying to pull the tooth and it, and it won't come out, okay? So it, it's, it's, yeah. So, yeah, that's a graphic image, right? I'm like, I got the pliers, and I'm like, this thing will not come out. What is wrong, okay? So, everybody ready? So, let's summarize. Here we go. Everybody ready? As Christians, we have a sin problem. Everybody can say? The things we want to do. The things we don't want to do. All right. Who's going to deliver me? What, what's the solution? All right. What does God do in regards to sin? What is the first thing he sinned? Give us the law. What's the problem with that? Okay, here's the theological correct answer. What's the problem with the law? Me. Not the law. Is there a defect in the law? No. Is the law unholy? No. Where's the problem? Me. The weakness of my flesh. Okay, good. All right. Now, what's the second thing he sins? Christ now how does he deal with how does Christ deal with the, with sin First he keeps the law he dies for it takes God's wrath for it and then in Christ what am I forgiven holy perfect obedient Got it Next now that takes care of what problem My positional problem please get these words these were, I'm not using these words because I, I don't have better words to use, right? Positionally. Now, that still leaves what problem? Practically, because I still live where? In a body. That is dominated by what? A flesh, which is sinful. All right, so what does he send? What's the next thing he sends to combat said problem? Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Number one, gives us a different way of thinking. Right? It should impact the way we think. How do we think differently? This is one thing that every Christian can acknowledge. How do we think differently? Well, we should think differently about sin. Right? Think differently about God. Think differently about ourselves. There should just be some basic differences in thinking. Agreed? Right? Number two, what is the second thing it does? Hope for a future resurrection. Hey, this body that I live in, this body is going away and it's going to be resurrected into a new body. So why should I not be spending my time serving the thing that's going away? What should I be serving? The eternal spirit that is in me. Everybody got that? Third thing it should do. It should lead me, guide me to fight against the flesh because I should look. Remember that way of thinking that should be different? What do I know the flesh ultimately produces? The works of the flesh are always death in the sense that it's negative, painful, destructive. It doesn't bring joy, peace. It doesn't bring any of that. It brings division, fighting, unhappiness, discontentment. No, I should fight against it. And then what's the next thing it should do? Or, I like the way you stated it, 
should bring me into a relationship with God as my father, not as my enemy. Remember that the carnal mind is at enmity with God, right? But now my mind should be like God is my father. That's all what the spirit should do. And then there's one last thing, but we will stop right there. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit in us is important. It is important. It's critical. All right? Wow. I hope that was beneficial. I hope that was beneficial. Let me see. I hope. I know that was painful, but I had to make it painful. All right? Okay, I have to make it. Okay, good. No, nobody left any mean comments saying, what are you talking about? Okay, I did the best I could there, all right? Any questions? I know you're just hoping that it's over, but okay. All right, <laughs> it's over. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you uh, this morning. Lord, this is a very difficult, wordy section of scripture that is so hard to try to wrap our minds around exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Lord, I did everything I could I, as, as hard as that was, I did everything in my power to try to make sure everyone here understands it. I hope they do. If people listening online still doesn't understand Romans 8, I hope they ask the questions so that we can try to clarify this so that we have a better understanding of your word and a better understanding of what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in and through us. Lord, we pray for a couple of things this morning. We pray for... Uh, um, um, Mr. Goodlett, we pray for uh, his uh, continued healing. Uh, we pray, uh, obviously, uh, for uh, Sarah Danzler's brother. Uh, we pray uh, for um, all the other situations, not only in the church, but around the world. We pray, continue to pray for Stacy's health as well. And there's people here with all kinds of other dif- different issues that I may not even be aware of. We just lift all of our needs and difficulties before you and that you work according to your will for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.